Hi, I'm Margie, and you're listening to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the weekly podcast where each week I interview a different guest and find out about their seven Desert Island dishes. The question is, could you narrow down your own choices and settle on the best dish you've ever eaten? Thank you so much for downloading and listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and tell your friends about Desert Island Dishes. I hope you have your snacks at the ready for this one because there are lots of delicious things in here. Rosie also made me the most incredible white chocolate and rhubarb blondies, and they were so incredibly good. We need to badger her for the recipe. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Rosie Burkett. Rosie is a food writer, food stylist, and author. She has written three books and has been writing about chefs, restaurants, and food since 2008. Rosie's recipes and food styling have appeared on the cover of BBC Good Food magazine, Olive magazine, and been featured in The Telegraph, Red magazine, Grazia, InStyle, and Guardian Cook, to name literally just a few. Of her brilliant book, A Lot on Her Plate, it was said by none other than Michelle Rue Jr. In a culinary world full of froths, foams and smears, this is a book for those that love real food. It's a breath of fresh air and a feast for the eyes, full of mouth-watering recipes to excite the palate and take you to a gastronomic heaven. Welcome, Rosie. Hello. <laughs> um, can we just talk about that quote? The, the, Incredibly I mean, generous of Michelle to say that. Do quotes get better than that? I mean, I couldn't actually believe it when <laughs> when that came through because I sent him um, the manuscript for the book, and I did. I, I knew him from writing from my job as a restaurant reporter, and I and I asked him to provide a quote and didn't think anything would come of it because you often ask questions and don't expect a response from someone like yeah. Michelle Rue Jr. <laughs> and actually he phoned me and it was in the middle of a time when we were trying to buy a house yeah and I was getting all of these calls like no one calls me it's either PPI or my husband no one else calls me so whenever I get a call from an unknown number at that point, I was thinking it was an estate agent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I picked up the phone and I'd, I'd previously had these annoying estate agents calling me. And, and I was like, hello. <laughs> and then I was like, who is this? Because I didn't recognize the number. And he was like, oh, oh hi, God. Rosie, it's Michelle. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Hi. I'm so like, Michelle, who? Speak up. I was like, I'm sorry. I thought you were an estate agent. He said, oh, I know what you mean. They're, they're, they're not the best. So, yeah, that was that was hilarious. But, yeah, really kind of him to, to say that. Yeah. And, I mean, everyone else. You literally had every amazing person from the food world just raving about your book, which People is just People were incredible. really nice. And it was very encouraging because... It was a daunting thing to do because I sort of at that point was not hugely known for for writing recipes, even though I had been doing it for for a while. Um, I suppose I was better known for for my writing around restaurants and features and interviews with chefs. Um, but I was sort of quietly beavering away on you know personal projects like the book and and my blog and recipes, which were which were getting picked up by people and enjoyed. So to, to get that kind of support from the food world was really incredible and overwhelming and just it just goes to show what a lovely industry it is to work in yeah and how supportive people are but also we can't get away from the fact that the book is beautiful and it was all very well-deserved praise and let's dive straight into talking about the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood okay um well 
it's got to be my mum's roast, Sunday roast. Oh, wow. And I know that's a bit of a cop out because it's a, a broad range of things, but I couldn't, I would, if I had to choose one, it would be roast beef yep. and Yorkshire pudding. But my mum is just an incredible cook. And she, every Sunday of my childhood cooked, even in the, the hottest of the heat waves, <laughs> was cooking these Sunday lunches. And they, they were a real kind of center point for our family because um, my granny would come and my uncle Bob, who wasn't actually my uncle, oh. <laughs> would come and my auntie Jane and the whole family would gather and my dad and it was just this time where we'd all sit around for hours and hours and eat the most incredible food. And my mum just nailed, nailed it absolutely every time. And they were long lunches. They were usually very boozy, not, not particularly for me and my sister yeah. <laughs> until we were old enough. Um, but yeah, they were just these epic lunches and just really, really happy memories and some really awful memories of having screaming rows as well. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Like, like every family. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't be a family occasion without them. No, that's such a nice tradition. Is that something that you've carried on now that you're married? And... Sort of. It's very different now. Like I grew up in I grew up in the countryside in Kent and, um, you know, we had a big garden and, and it was we were just really lucky to live in this gorgeous location. And I think it, it was very different then because um you know my parents had us as children and now our lives are a bit busier and we we don't tend to have massive Sunday lunches we, I mean actually that's not true we do <laughs> we do like I do have people over to have Sunday lunch and yeah. Jamie and I usually will do a chicken because then we'll kind of live on it for the rest of the week and make stock and stuff like that so it is something that I love doing I wouldn't say we do it every Sunday in the same way but yeah. maybe you know maybe when I've got kids that will be something that we want to do I think so I think those kind of traditions evolve throughout your life don't they and we sort of may not be doing them now but as you say as things change and transition I think it's something that you come back to yeah maybe not in the summer though no maybe not in the <laughs> summer maybe a salad in the summer yeah <laughs> we're sitting in your kitchen which is possibly the most beautiful kitchen I've ever been to it's amazing oh, that's so kind of you yeah, um, perfect for Sunday lunches it is perfect and this table's great we got this on eBay and we had to hire a van it was so cheap it's Urkel but it was like which goes for hundreds and hundreds yeah of we got it so cheap I think it was like 80 quid including the chairs oh my goodness but we had to hire a van and go to like Buckinghamshire oh. <laughs> to some incredible like house with an outhouse where it was just sitting there rotting and we paid cash for it and we brought it home and it was just perfect for the space but you're right like the kitchen is pretty much the whole the whole flat though it's, it's like the kitchen is the downstairs which I love yeah it's the most important room so that's absolutely fine and it means that I'm you know if I have friends over, I'm not locked away in some yeah. small room. Yeah, that's sweaty and stressed. That's such drunk. a horrible feeling. And then they sort of leave and you're like, oh, I didn't really see anyone. Yeah, now I can just do that in front of them. So it's yeah. fine. <laughs> but your childhood growing up in Kent, it sounded sort of wonderfully idyllic, a bit like sort of Swallows and Amazons. Like... Oh, oh, it's so funny you should say that because that was, that was actually one of my dad's favourite books. Oh, really? And I think that he really wanted... They both, my, both my parents had met in living in London and they really wanted to bring us up somewhere that was kind of magical and, and, uh, and more, yeah, more kind of inspiring for us and somewhere that we could run feral. And I don't know whether it was they wanted us to go off and live these amazing 
imaginative stories which we did or whether they just wanted to get on with their own yeah <laughs> which was quite often the case you know they, they just used to open the door and we'd go and Ugh, we'd amazing. just ramble around and come back at when it was getting dark and you went on amazing camping trips and yeah did it all. yeah we did we did camping in France and Spain pretty much every year I absolutely love camping for that reason. I, I like obsessed with camping. Really, even now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still love it. And like Nuts in May. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't. Oh, you have to see it. It's a Mike Lee film. It's a really old one. Um, Alison Steadman. And they go camping and it just captures like the the geekery of camping and the kind of the politics of the campsite. God, I need to check that out. It's hilarious. So was it your mum that did most of the cooking as you're growing up? Because I yeah. did read an interview where you talked about your dad's um, pheasant dish that <laughs> didn't go quite <laughs> pheasant, to plan. Pheasant soup, yeah. <laughs> stank the house out with a cloying stench for about a week. Yeah, it that's was so gross. Yeah, no, mum did do most of the cooking and... Um, but dad had his signature dishes, he called them. What did they consist of? Some of them were really good. So he'd do things like poached um, haddock with with egg and spinach, which oh. was really nice. Yeah, that sounds nice. That was one of his special ones. And then he did he would dress a crab um, and he'd spend hours doing that. And then he did a seafood sizzle, which we might come to later. Okay, actually. yeah. Oh, great. But he, yeah, once made, he got hold of these pheasants and they were just incredibly high. Oh, no. To the point where they were kind of crawling oh, around. No. <laughs> um, and he made this soup and it was just... So it just smelled disgusting, like putrid. Can you still smell it to this I can day? still smell yeah. this like acrid, sort of sweet, really gross smell. And it just clung to the walls. <laughs> it brings to mind the smell of like alcohol poisoning. Oh, you know, that really no. clingy yeah. smell. And um, yeah, it just it just went down a, in history. And we, we laughed at him so much and we still laugh about it. Have you eaten pheasant since? I love pheasant, yeah. yeah. If, it's not, <laughs> if it's not like, you know, putrefying, then I, I do enjoy pheasant. And I think it's got a lovely flavour, um, a lovely developed flavour, but hopefully not that developed. No, putrefying. That has gone too far. Yeah, one to avoid. That brings us on possibly nicely to the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learnt to cook. One of the first things I learned to cook was a roast dinner because I was helping my mum, assisting on that and, you know, doing all the veg um, and everything like that. But actually, my mum was fairly, I don't want to say territorial, but she was more of a watch and learn rather than getting me involved. Yeah. Some people are like that in the kitchen, aren't they? Yeah. Like they, you know, they're in charge and... She, she definitely knew that she would do it better than we could so but actually I think learning how to do a Sunday roast it is probably quite useful to watch isn't it because yeah. all about the timings and you probably picked up quite I, a lot just from watching yeah definitely and I was given jobs like doing the gravy oh, yeah. you know or That's peeling sprouts job. so prepping food was always a part of the childhood and I loved doing it and I was keen I was like mom please let me do this please let me help <laughs> um, and eventually I got more and more responsibility yeah. you know <laughs> I mean I feel like the gravy is a big responsibility the gravy is a big one and she always used to you know taste it with me and make make sure I understood about how to adjust it and so that was a good one she always made stock and it was always made properly with proper stock and there was always a I remember she has these she's still got them in her freezer flora tubs oh so yeah tubs of flora and they're always labeled like beef stock beef gravy and she's always got like a stash of ongoing it's like she's probably got some beef gravy from 20 years ago that's just gone <laughs> on and on and on Yum. <laughs> um, a bit like a sort of really old sourdough starter um, so definitely that and I think the other thing I learned really early on was a spag bowl oh yes um, um, and that was 
that was more because I got really fixated with Jamie Oliver. That sounds really creepy. Not like, you know, when you're a teenager and you get obsessed with things. Yeah. I mean, he was the naked chef. He was the naked chef. And I think that piqued my interest um, (laughs) because it it felt a little bit rude. And then he was just this cool guy. You know, he was doing food in a way that I hadn't seen it done. Like we always watched Floyd and Rick Stein and we loved them. But Jamie was just this vivacious, you know, much more relatable to a teenager. Yeah, definitely. Sliding down the banister and hopping on his scooter and going to borough market and the way he approached food and he just made it so relaxed and it it made you feel like you could do it yourself and I remember I got I got one of his cookbooks for Christmas and there's a spag bowl recipe in there so it was a combination of that and my mum's recipe which is also really good and I kind of combined them and a killing combination busted that one out a few times yeah so you sounded very conscientious you went to Leeds and you read English yes And then you didn't waste any time. Like you got extra jobs sort of for the local paper and you really got stuck in. Did you know at that point you wanted to be a writer? No, I I really... I was really unsure because I wanted actually wanted to be an actress when I was little. Oh, did you? Yeah, I really wanted to. And my parents, and I wanted to go to drama school. And and I'm going to sound like some big sob story. You know, I'm really lucky that I went to a, a very good university and got a great degree. But I, my parents were very keen because neither of them went to uni. They, they were keen for me to go and they wanted me to get that academic um, grounding. But I was... I've never been that academic, actually. I'm more creative and my sister's the really academic one. And I did struggle a bit with that initially. I felt like I was, you know, as amazing as it was reading three books a week, every day, every week. Yeah. At first I was like, oh, I just want to be doing art school or acting. And eventually I got so into my degree and I realized, you know, what a huge kind of privilege it was to be doing something like that and it was amazing to and it was when you have more autonomy over what you could read as well but yeah it was kind of getting involved with the student paper I found that really fun but I didn't really know I I didn't sort of know that I specifically wanted to be a writer I was tossing up between that and photography okay because I've always taken photos and I and I love photography so when I came out of uni I wasn't sure I just knew I wanted to do something in media and communication and you know portraying sort of content yeah I think that sort of reminds me that it's it's so hard to know what you want to do at that age isn't it and there's 18 yeah and there's so many jobs out there and you don't know what they all consist of and then there is pressure sort of really well-intended pressure from parents but they sort of worry about creative jobs don't they and I I wonder whether that's going to change sort of now that the the whole job market does seem so different to even what it was 10 years ago I mean it's crazy when I when I think about what my job is now and it's it's so many different things I wouldn't have known that these jobs existed like I didn't even know until a few years ago that a food stylist was a job and I I certainly didn't think about food and cooking and back then it wasn't really like home ec at our school was taught so badly by a woman who just clearly didn't enjoy food. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And, and it was just not an option. And yeah, you're right. Trying to know exactly what you're going to be. And if it was either a teacher or a lawyer or a doctor or, or, you know, those were the options. Yeah. And as someone really creative, I struggled with that. And because I was a little bit naughty at school or I was considered naughty, I, I actually wasn't, yeah. you know, that bad. I was just a bit chatty. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Very naughty. And a bit scatterbrained, but, you know, not, not so naughty. But, I, yeah, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So going down that route was just kind of 
the the way I thought I should go, I guess. Yeah. And then you had a lucky break when you got a job to cover someone on who was on maternity leave at the Caterer magazine as features editor. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I got a job um straight after uni, pretty much on a local magazine in Leeds, which was similar to Time Out. And yeah. um it's sadly not going anymore, but it was it was a great listings magazine and it was a really young team and it was a bit like press gang. It was just really fun. And I got some really good general kind of journalism experience there. And then I, I started writing about food there, actually, because my editor clocked onto the fact that I was obsessed with food. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there was always a trail of crumbs around my desk. And it was like the running joke that in my filing cabinet, I had like a squeezy bottle of mustard and balsamic <laughs> vinegar and oat cakes and all this food. And so he started giving me restaurant reviews to do, which was um, when I was like, wow, this is great. I'm writing about something that I'm really actually massively into. Yeah. And then, yeah, my friend was working on Caterer and she told me about this job that came up. And I was looking at this point to move to London and try and you know, get a job in the in the media. And I applied for it and very, like, very luckily got it. And that was kind of the beginning of, of you know, my career as it is now. And they, they were fantastic team to work with. Cater is such an institution. So it's a real institution, of a weekly magazine for, for the hospitality trade. Again, a, jo- a job I never knew existed. No. I didn't know there were, were trade magazines. So it was, you know, it was amazing to find out that, that this was a, a magazine. And yeah. suddenly being sent into kitchens at, at a time, you know, it was 2008 and the, the British food scene was really changing and things were things were starting to become more informal but still a lot of it was about fine dining so I'd never even been to a Michelin starred restaurant like we never ate out as my mum just cooked at home or we'd go for you know pizza or yeah we'd go to these rustic restaurants in France when we were camping but we never went to fancy restaurants it was way out of the kind of league I, I can just imagine back then that experience must have just I mean it must have just sort of blown your mind that this was a job that you could actually get paid to do and it was sort of everything that you loved like that's just the best scenario isn't it yeah it was amazing and there were other sides to the job as well like there were articles that had to be written about sort of industry yeah stuff (laughs) quite dry things about tax or you know all of that stuff because it's important to, to the people that are reading the magazine but it was the it was the like interviewing chefs and going to the restaurants and finding out about the food they were doing and seeing that that really that really lit me up and that made me realize wow this is actually something I I want to look further into and continue with oh so exciting yeah the third desert island dish is the best dish you've ever eaten Uh, that is just so impossible you know it's a hard question I I'm I love food so much and basically it changes from week to week you know it's whatever I'm really feeling like and then I eat it I'm just like this is the best thing ever (laughs) um and I've also been incredibly lucky to have some really phenomenal meals and experiences with food so I'm really struggling to, to specify one but definitely for me, it's a lot to do with travel. Like I often feel like I'm having the best moment of my life and it's often to do with food when I'm, you know, sitting in a Greek taverna eating fish that's just been caught and drinking cheap Greek wine with the waves lapping at my feet. Like that yeah. is the best moment. But I think on my 30th birthday, my husband took me to Venice and I'd never been. Oh. Um, and we went to this 
wonderful wine bar slash restaurant called Enoteca Mascarata on the on the recommendation of Jackson Boxer from Brunswick House who told me that I had to go here and we went there and I had we we shared this huge thing of of uh, Vongle oh. and it was unbelievable with the cloudy prosecco the oh. veneto cloudy prosecco and we just had this really romantic meal because the whole thing was a surprise going to venice and i was turning 30 and i was with jamie and it was just really special really really and it's like those for me it's eating food that's of a place while you're there yeah and just tasting you know, it's either the ingredients of the local area or it's just the kind of culture that comes through in the food. Like they've been cooking this for so long. It's so ingrained in how they live. And it just it's just an amazing way to to taste and experience places through food. I, I love I love it. Definitely. And you're so right. Like those are the kind of occasions that you just can't repeat. Like it's who you're with and it's just the whole the whole thing. Just yeah amazing but there have been so many I'm, I'm just I'm yeah I can't I think that's a very good choice pinpoint you should be happy with that yeah one. okay the life of a freelance writer I think it's one of those things that we're sort of hearing a lot about but there's mm. curiosity as to how it sort of works in mm. the practical sense so is it a case of constantly coming up with ideas and then pitching them and emailing people or is that is that how it works? It definitely was like that for years and years and years and years. It was a lot of banging on doors and constantly emailing and pestering people and occasionally plucking up the courage to ring and try and speak to someone. That's really scary. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it just that's just how it is when you go, you know, when you're freelance. And I, I had to go freelance because there were just no jobs. There was just, it was the recruitment freeze basically all across the media as far as I could see in 2008. And, and I just, they just couldn't get in there with any with any of them so going freelance just meant yeah banging banging on doors basically I think now I'm I'm a bit lucky because I've been working for a while on it so now I'm sort of getting work and it's a bit more reactive but I still send pitches and I still pitch and I still pitch around for work and it's definitely not you know it's not just rolling in it's, no. it's still a case of pitching stuff and having ideas for sure yeah and do you have any structure to your week like is there anything that's sort of constant or is every week really different I do regular recipes for the Guardian's new Saturday oh, yes. magazine Guardian Feast and I also do regular monthly recipes for BBC Good Food magazine so I have to develop a certain amount of recipes every week so I sort of structure my week around that so I know I need to spend a few days in the kitchen you know developing recipes and then the rest of the time I'll split it between kind of having meetings writing and doing my you know doing food styling shoots and things that come up other things that come up kind of on what am I saying I don't know like (laughs) other things that come up sporadically but that sounds like such a nice sort of balance between having regular things that you know you're doing and then yeah being able to sort of weave all the other interesting things you're doing around that definitely it's it's really nice to have a regular thing and and that was tough actually when you completely don't know what your week's gonna bring when there's nothing in there and you're just having to like wait and see what you can get yeah it's like fishing you know yeah, you just don't, scary. don't know when it's going to come in so yeah. it's really good to have a structure now definitely and not really related to that at all but just because I'm nosy what do you normally have for breakfast Rosie oh um it's it depends whether I've had a big meal the night before if I've been out for a big dinner 
I'll tend to have something lighter, like some porridge. Yeah. Um, I like, I love porridge, actually. Different, I've been having a lot of porridge and poached rhubarb at the moment. Oh, yes. But yeah, so porridge and seasonal fruits. And then when I'm, when I'm, you know, not feeling quite so so much of a food hangover I'll have um I love sourdough bread so I'll have toast I just love toast that's that's funny you say that because I feel like I'm kind of the opposite the bigger my meal is the night before the hungry you are yeah the bigger my breakfast needs to be so strange I probably do that too (laughs) I'm probably just trying to make myself sound better than I am (laughs) um yeah no I I love the the sourdough bread and toast and eggs I'm obsessed with eggs and especially at the weekend we always have eggs and toast yes um very good tradition yeah it's just nothing hits the spot quite like an egg no it's true Rosie wise words from Rosie It's a meal in a shell. (laughs) Quit while you're ahead. (laughs) So the fourth desert island dish is what is your favorite sandwich? Ooh. Oh, I love a sandwich. I mean, I really, really love sandwiches, even even bad ones. I even quite like, you know, a tuna and cucumber number. I'm with you. I just any sandwich is great, but I think my my ultimate favorite one is, and again, it's gonna be a variation on this, a bacon sandwich, really good bacon. And then squishy white bread. Oh, hang on. That's just made me remember chip butties. Oh, they also vibe for my attention. But I might get to those later on anyway. Um, So a bacon sandwich is bliss on squishy white bread that's been dipped in the bacon fat. So cook the bacon under the grill and let it kind of get a nice pool of fat and then dip the bread into that. And a fried egg in there as well. I mean, yeah. So that when you bite in the yolk just explodes in your mouth. And the reason that has such a fantastic resonance with me is because on these camping trips, when we used to go to France as a family, with the dragging the Conway Tardis, which was the most eccentric caravan slash trailer oh, tent, <laughs> everyone was like, oh, do you go on holiday in a caravan? And I couldn't. I could never just be like, yes, I had to be like, no, it's a Conway TARDIS, which was basically, and then is that a trailer tent? No, it's not. It's not quite a trailer tent. It was a, it was an amazing thing that you basically towed that pumped up with a crank. You had this like metal thing that you used to insert and crank it up. Okay. And then it, it, it sort of came up and these canvas wings came out either end which were double bunks so so basically hence the TARDIS so you had all the space of a caravan in the middle and then these extra double beds either side so you had extra space it's like a tent from Harry Potter or something yeah yeah it was amazing (laughs) and my parents kept it for years and years and years and we holidayed in it every year and it, it was this big rigmarole around like you know, having to pack it away with precision, having to dry it all out, having to spend days prepping it before we went <laughs> away. And so we'd set off and we'd always get the ferry from Dover. And my mum would, we'd, we'd be in the queue for the ferry at like 6am. So my mum was probably up at about four or five in the morning making these egg and bacon sandwiches. Oh my God, that's so cute. And she used to wrap them up in tinfoil and we'd sit in the queue for the ferry, which used to be really long. And my sister and I would just be so excited, just like so so excited about the holiday that we sit there with these egg and bacon sandwiches with listening to our Walkmans <laughs> and just just in absolute sheer heaven oh God, your mom sounds like the dream she was she really was I mean why we couldn't have had a fry up on the ferry like 
everyone else. I well, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I just know that would not have been the same. <laughs> so for anyone who may not be aware, mm. what exactly is a food stylist? Food stylist is someone who makes the food that you see in books or magazines or adverts or on TV and film look good. Yeah. And look like what it's meant to look like, basically. And it's really important because we eat with our eyes. Yeah. And do you have like a little kit bag when you I do? I do. I have got a, a, a kit bag. It's called a Quirkity. It's made of canvas. My mum gave it to me. It's similar to the Conway Tardis, actually. <laughs> it's got a same, a same, the similar colour scheme of the, um, of the canvas and the green. Um, do you have everything in there from tweezers? Tweezers, yep. Yeah. I have got a bad habit of leaving things on shoots. It's easy um, to do. It's, yeah, it's I'm annoying. often, you know, thinking that I've got something and then realising I must have left it on that shoot, um, which is why I want to label everything. But of course, I haven't got around to doing that. Yeah, you need a label maker. I need a label maker. And, and that's the first hurdle. <laughs> do you, Are you one of those stylists that sort of, are you busy varnishing turkeys no. and using tea bags and is no. it it's more just making it look beautiful yeah. without the sort of gimmicks exactly I have I had one job where I did end up having to to, to varnish a turkey and I didn't enjoy it funnily enough um but yeah did the turkey I don't think I don't think the turkey did either <laughs> I basically try and my my motto with the food styling is obviously it needs to look good but I want it to reflect I don't do loads of uh, adverts so it's more editorial stuff and it's more about making it look how it should look yeah but bringing out the beauty why the dish is appealing what why the ingredients are naturally beautiful kind of trying to bring those to the fore yeah well yeah otherwise it can be very demoralizing if you make yeah. something and you're sort of looking at it in the book or the magazine thinking oh <laughs> yeah it's not what mine looks like I think it's yeah, one exactly of, yeah. it's misleading for people and yeah. I hate that I think it's one of those jobs that sounds very glamorous. Is it's it not very, at all. <laughs> no. It's very hard work. Like you're it's, on your feet a lot. Yeah. It's really long days and it's very physical. Like, like you know, not the same hours as chefing, but it is in the same way you are on your feet all day. And it's funny because quite often you'll end up, you know, not really having a proper lunch and you're you're so busy. It depends what kind of shoot it is and how many dishes you've got to do, for how many shots, but yeah. it's pretty full on. Yeah, very, very hard work, but really fun as well. And what I love about doing it is that you're in a team and you're doing something collaborative. Yeah, definitely. Which when you're writing, you know, I love writing after I've done it. Yeah, <laughs> and the satisfaction. Yeah, the satisfaction. And I do get into it, but I do find the isolation of it quite difficult. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So I guess that sort of goes back to our earlier point about it being really nice to do a variety of different things. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's nice to mix it up. But then it equally can be quite hard to get into the right brain as well. Yeah. And you're splitting your brain between two completely different disciplines. Yeah. It can be tricky sort of readjusting. The fifth desert island dish is the dish that you eat the most often. Ooh, oh, gosh. Um... Well, I go through phases. Yeah. I go through massive phases. And I have been cooking a lot of Sri Lankan food since we got back from our honeymoon because we went to Sri Lanka in, on honeymoon. And the food was just unbelievably good. And I fell completely in love with it. And I did loads of cookery classes while I was out there and just made loads of notes and picked it up and have been cooking 
Sri Lankan food ever since. Well, I say Sri Lankan, obviously it's using British ingredients yeah. and it's not, it's probably not authentic, but taking what I learned and the way they use coconut and coconut oil and curry leaves and the spices and they just are masters of cooking with veg. So they use whatever they've got available and it's all fresh and they just make it so delicious. And yeah, so I've been doing a lot of Sri Lankan. What would be like your go-to Sri Lankan dish that you're making? Well, I do a really good beetroot one Mm. and the dal. So dals are just always a good thing to have yeah. on the go. A big pot of dal, dip into it. Yeah. Good for breakfast, lunch and dinner. What's the beetroot one looking like? So that's, um, you chop the beetroot into kind of matchsticks, so you julienne it, and then you cook it with curry leaves, mustard seeds, coconut oil, spices, fenugreek, then the roasted Sri Lankan curry powder, which is important. You can make your own. You just make it by toasting a selection of spices and grinding them up. Yeah. And the roasting of the spices gives a really deep flavor, which is just amazing. They also use raw curry powder, but I prefer the, the, the roasted one. Yeah. It's really quick Sri Lankan curries as well. A lot of people think curries are going to take hours and hours, yeah. but they're actually really quick. So you you start with um, tempering the mustard seeds and the curry leaves in the hot oil. Then you add in sort of onions and garlic and then the beetroot. And the, the beetroot you sort of toss first with fenugreek and you add that in with the curry powder as well. And then you just add a bit of the coconut milk and the coconut cream and simmer it until, it's, until it's soft. That sounds amazing. And it's really good. Yeah, really, really good. Sounds, I, I and like, salt, obviously. Different as well. I like that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you when your book, A Lot on Her Plate, came out, Mm. it was right at the time when clean eating was booming. (laughs) And your book, I felt, was like a real antidote to that. And it was a celebration of all things delicious. Mm. But I wondered, did you ever feel swept up in the clean eating fad or worried by the timing of things? I mean, I think at the time I felt like oh dear this yeah. is this is I've brought out a book called a lot on her plate all about the joy of eating and and being greedy and basically obsessed with food and all food um indiscriminately so you know at a time when everyone's suddenly worried about you know eating anything so I was at the time I think slightly concerned yeah and I did feel a bit like oh gosh <laughs> this isn't the best timing for my book but actually it was really good timing because it was so different to that like it you yeah. know you had such good reviews and anyone who picked up your book absolutely loved it it just was an interesting time then. yeah I was really I was actually really pleased that I had done it at that time and that so many people reacted well to it and and loved and embraced the recipes and you know the the biggest success in terms of recipes from that book was the salted butterscotch popcorn cheesecake, which is also for sure the most unhealthy recipe in the book too, like the most indulgent. And people really, really love that. And they still, I get these tags on Instagram of people still making it. And really, yeah, lots of people make it as their like birthday cake or their celebration cake for for Christmas or Easter. And it's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's so nice. Um, so I was really pleased and I, I was really pleased to be talking about the joy of food and not being worried about calories or cutting things out. I mean, I understand if you have a medical intolerance or you are concerned about something having an effect on your health and cutting it out for that reason. But I felt like there was a lot of miscommunication around healthy and I feel like healthy became, and I still to some extent feel like healthy 
is something that's slightly misunderstood. And the whole diet thing is so complicated. You know, people are constantly being told different things and there's so much contradictory stuff out there. And I just wanted to kind of say, listen, cooking from scratch is a great place to start. And I'm not selling you a diet. I'm just trying to you know, help you cook food that's going to bring you joy and nourish you and, you know, make you make your friends really like you. Yes, <laughs> which is the most important thing. Um, no, I, I mean, the book is beautiful and everything you said just rings true. Like I, I thought was actually really how it worked out was really good timing because you were providing something so different and sort of helping people get back to what really matters, which is, you know, delicious food. That brings us on really nicely to the sixth desert island dish. And that's your go-to dinner party dish. Yeah, dinner party dish. Well, it changes all the time because I'm constantly getting different inspirations or I'm getting obsessed with one. I'm a very, I get very obsessed with things. And I'm, my dad was the same, it's monomania. So I'll get like thoroughly obsessed with one thing and just do that. And then I'll move on to the next thing. God, that's the same as me. I didn't realize there was (laughs) a name for it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's not like, it, it, it varies. So for a dinner party, I'll probably do something slow cooked especially at this time of year, because you can sort of let it get on with itself, but it, it it ends up being really kind of rich and delicious and you feel like a lot of love's gone into it. So I might make a really good ragu or I might do a slow cooked pork belly yes. um, with a, you know, so the skin gets really crispy and the, and the meat's all kind of collapsing um, and juicy. And then in the summer, I'm probably more likely to do a barbecue or lots of salads and a big piece of roast fish. Yes. Um, so it's, it's always something seasonal basically yeah. and, and not, not fussy like I don't do fussy starters I always do simple you know I'll probably just have some radishes on the table when people come some sourdough some butter and salt I won't tend to do like fiddly little canapes no (laughs) you know things like that and then I might do a big burrata salad that everyone can just rip into I love the Italian way of of cooking and eating I love the relaxed you know just focusing on things like really good olive oil really good bread and picking at things and sharing food that's my kind of yeah my go-to would that be your kind of top tip for hosting a stress-free dinner party yeah I'd say do things that are that are about the ingredients letting the ingredients sing and putting things together that work um and using if you want if you want to show someone a bit of love like you know doing an amazing salad with some really beautiful pristine ingredients and a really good olive oil is is a lovely way to do it it doesn't have to be complicated. No, it doesn't. It doesn't have to be complicated at all. And I don't think people, when they go, like when I go around to my friends' houses for dinner, I, I don't want fiddly little no. swipes of things. <laughs> I want like a bowl of something delicious or, you know, some really, really good pastry or, you know, something just that makes me happy. So you're not really disappointed if they don't make a sort of foam or... <laughs> no, no. In fact, I'd be disappointed if they did. <laughs> Rosie, I can't believe it, but we're on to the final seventh (gasps) desert island dish. And it's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Before being cast off, what would I eat? Oh, I know what I'd have. Yeah. Okay. Fish and chips. Great answer. Yeah. And this brings me on to the chip butty. Oh, yes. The (laughs) unbridled joy of carb on carb chip butty. There's nothing better. It's just 
I know it's, it might make me sound pretty basic, but it's just so good. And the, the smell, still the smell of chips in paper, the smell of hot vinegary chips in paper wafting past my face makes me immediately need to go and eat <laughs> chips. There is literally nothing better. So would you go full fish and chips and then have a chip butty on the side? Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. It, every time my mum lives now by the sea in Kent and whenever we go there, there is I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna put it out there. I think the best fish and chip shop. Wow. Ever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and they have really funny opening hours, um, and you kind of have to check beforehand whether they're going to be open because they they sort of open for a few hours a day and that's it. And because they don't need to be open anymore because yeah. their fish and chips is so good, <laughs> and they know it. <laughs> they know it. Oh, they know it for sure. The fish and chips is unbelievable. The the batter is so light and crispy. The fish is really really fresh incredible big white chunks of fish and the chips are phenomenal so we'll um we'll get mum to um basically warm the plates up and and butter the white bread and then we'll go out and get the fish and chips and bring it back you got it down i know <laughs> and last time we went she'd run out of ketchup so that was that oh, was a disaster. You might as well just thrown everything away. I know. I was like, I can't <laughs> believe you've let it come to this, Mum. You've got some, you've let yourself down. You've got some condiments in your cupboard from 1976, but you haven't got any any ketchup. But yeah, fish and chips, and we we had that for my wedding meal as well. That Did was you? yeah, we had a fish and chip van. Oh my god, that's such a good idea. Yeah, because I was just like, what am I gonna do? People are gonna expect something really lavish, and I just you know not got the budget for that no that's such a good idea yeah such a good idea it was great I really love fish and chips so with a side of yeah white bread and butter for the for the chip butty so that the hot chips hit the butter and melt it into the bread it's key it's so good god Rosie I'm not gonna have to go and get some fish and chips (laughs) on the way yeah (laughs) you're allowed to take with you one luxury item it can be anything you like. Cyril the Whippet. Oh, yeah, we've had a few dogs on Is the that island. okay? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, definitely Cyril take Cyril. Is a great luxury item. <laughs> Thank you so much for letting us hear your desert island dishes. Thank you so much for having me. I told you it would make you hungry. It did, didn't it? Don't forget to head to www.desertislanddishes.co for the recipe I've created inspired by Rosie's choice of desert island dishes. You can also find me on Instagram at madebymargie and Twitter as well, but it's a lot doing both, isn't it? So I have to be honest, it's mainly Instagram. Thanks so much for listening and I will see you next time. Bye.